crazy busy. And you are? You're crazy busy too, aren't you? <laughs> and how about you over here? You're crazy busy as well. Isn't that, isn't that crazy how, how crazy busy we all are? Uh, life normally is crazy busy, but even in times of a pandemic, it seems like it's that much more stressful to navigate these waters. And, and it's very easy for us to get sidetracked on what's really important. I once heard Brian Regan, the comedian, have a, a, a portion of a skit where he talked about how he put off getting an eye exam for six years. And he finally went to the, the doctor and got his eye exam, and he thought to himself as he put his contacts in, wow, I could have been seeing this whole time. <laughs> and he asked the question, how can instantly improved vision not be at the top of your to-do list? That's a really good question. Then he parodies the answer, no, I'll see tomorrow. I don't have time. I don't have time to see clearly. No, I don't. No, I can't do that. Do you see what's on my desk? <laughs> I love that skit because it's, it's so uh, precise and, and it helps peel back our defensiveness about how crazy busy we are and how things can get out of priority in our lives. There's a line from the musical Hamilton, and it says, There's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait. Just you wait. And I love that song, but it's been stuck in my head ever since I heard that this summer. And this was a, a description of Hamilton and his ambition in life and wanting to, to get things done and to, to make a name for himself. But I think that this line could also reflect the attitude of our heart sometimes. We've got a million things that we need to do, and we know there are some really important things that we need to give our attention to. God and family and and other priorities, but, but they'll just have to wait. We'll get to them eventually. Do you see what's on my desk? Have you seen my to-do list? Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Crazy Busy, writes, We are so busy with a million pursuits that we don't even notice the most important things are slipping away. And so I want to ask us the question as we get ready to Look at this passage from the life of Jesus. How do we find time for what matters most? If it's true that we are crazy busy, and if it's true that it's very easy to get our priorities out of line, and if it's true that we can have the most important things slip away, then how do we find time for what matters most? As we unpack this gospel of Jesus, this good news, Luke's going to present us with an episode in which he encounters some good friends of his. And the way they respond to him in this particular moment is going to be defining not only of who they are, but revealing of what their motives are and what's driving their lives. And so we're going to call our study today Our Crazy Busy Lives and the One Thing That's Necessary. Whether you've been a follower of Jesus for just a short time or maybe you're exploring the good news of Christ, maybe you've been following him for a long time, we're going to see Jesus have the audacity to tell us that our lives ought to be centered on him, that he is the priority of all priorities. And so let's give a listen to what this gospel writer Luke tells us about this particular episode in, our life, in the life of Jesus that can have tremendous impact on all of our lives and all of our crazy, busy lives. And this is how he begins. This is chapter 10 and verse 38. Now is the day, this is, this is Jesus and his disciples, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, 
And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary. Now Luke doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about who these people are. But what we need to know is this is the family that Jesus loved. Mary, Martha, and they had a brother named Lazarus. And the story of his death is recorded for us in John chapter 11. This is that family. And so Luke just, he doesn't go into that detail. He just tells us Jesus enters into this town. And a woman named Martha welcomes Jesus into her house. And she has a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Now imagine if Jesus came to your place and you had the opportunity to hear him speak firsthand. You don't have to hear someone else recount what Jesus said. You could receive it straight from him. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing to ask questions that you've always wanted to ask, but now you have the opportunity to do so? I remember in seminary having a wealth of great teachers, and there were two men in particular, Ralph Davis and Knox Chamlin, that I would love just to sit at their feet and listen to them talk about any verse in the Bible. Just open it up, point your finger there, and say, tell me what you see here. Those, those men were insightful and walked closely with Christ, but, but here is Christ himself coming into your house, and you have the opportunity to learn from him. And so Mary... She sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to his teaching. There's a problem here that probably most of us don't see right off the bat. If we lived in the first century context and the patriarchal society that they lived in, we would see a red flag right away. What is Mary doing sitting at the feet of a rabbi? This in that world was no place for a woman. Listen to what N.T. Wright, this New Testament scholar, said about this passage. He says, The real problem between Martha and Mary wasn't that the workload that Martha had wasn't the workload that Martha had in the kitchen. That no doubt was real enough. No, the real problem was that Mary was behaving as if she were a man. In that culture, as in many parts of the world to this day, houses were divided into male space and female space. And male and female roles were strictly demarcated as well. Mary had crossed an invisible but very important boundary within the house and another equally important boundary within the social world. To sit at the feet of a teacher was a decidedly male role. To sit at someone's feet meant, quite simply, to be their student. Or to put it in the words of the New Testament, to be their disciple. Now, there were ladies who followed Jesus and the disciples around, just like the crowds followed Jesus around. They would listen to his teachings from afar. But to have the privilege or the space to sit at the feet of a rabbi, that was strictly reserved in that day for males. Now, there's one commentator by the name of Philip Ryken who tells us that some rabbis permitted women to study the Torah, but forbade them to sit at their feet for formal instruction. Jesus not only permitted it, he positively encouraged it. To him, it was as important to teach women the doctrines of discipleship as it was to teach men. Every believer is called to grow in his or her understanding of the gospel of Jesus. Mary reveled in her opportunity to do just that. While Martha was busy preparing a banquet, Mary was already having one. She was feasting on 
the word of Christ. So in a very subtle way, Luke is pointing out how Jesus elevated women in the context in which he was living and invited her to sit at his feet. And so we're told she did that. She was listening. But Martha was distracted. And she was distracted with serving. This, after all, was her house. And you just had Jesus and his group of disciples show up unannounced. And there's probably others who are not as prominent of his followers who are there as well. And so you have a bunch of people at your house. And there's no doubt a million things she needs to do. She needs to to make sure that they're fed. She needs to make sure the drinks are ready. She needs to make sure that hospitality is at at full display here. Because this is Jesus. And this is his group of people. And we're told she was distracted. But, but can we blame her on one hand? I mean, she's distracted with serving. The Apostle Peter would later tell us this. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I mean, we're called to show hospitality and to use our gifts to serve others. And Jesus himself said, I am among you as one who serves. So Mary is doing, I'm sorry, Martha is doing a very good thing. She is, she's wanting to serve them. But she's distracted. Jesus is there, but what's on her mind is making sure everyone has food to eat and something to drink. And so this is good for us to pause for just a moment and stress this important point. Even good things like serving others and even ministry to others can be a distraction from the most important things. We're told in verse 40, she, that is Martha, went up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. Jesus, tell her to do what she's supposed to be doing. Tell her to to leave your feet and come help me. Do you not care? That's that's a great question, isn't it? It's it's a revealing question. Sometimes we may not articulate it, but but sometimes we do want to say this to the Lord. When, When life is spinning out of control and there's a million things we haven't done, Jesus doesn't seem to be fixing it. Sometimes we say, Lord, don't you care? Do you not care? Maybe I could give you a suggestion or two on how to to fix the situation, to to do something to help me out. We're told in verse 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Can you hear the gentleness in the voice of Christ in in getting her attention by saying her name? Martha, Martha. He diagnoses her heart. What's going on in the midst of the busyness, why she's resenting her sister, is because she's anxious. And she's troubled about many things. 
And here Jesus said, but one thing is necessary. This is a good place to ask ourselves the question. What are the things on your to-do list that you are anxious and troubled about? Let's just admit, there there are those things that we need to get done, and probably a million things we haven't done, that are causing anxiety, that are enslaving us, that are causing us to stress and to be troubled. And yet Jesus says there's one thing necessary. So I wonder if we maybe could have the audacity to put ourselves into the shoes of Martha for just a moment, and to hear Jesus speaking to us, And saying our name. April, April. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Jackson, Jackson, you are anxious about many things, but there's one thing that's necessary. Can we hear Jesus speaking to us through this text? pointing out that there are so many things on our to-do list that have us enslaved to anxiety. And yet he wants to break through all of that and remind us that there is only one thing necessary. Jesus, in saying this, continues, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Martha was worried about serving portions of food to make sure that their guests were satisfied. But here Jesus says, Mary has actually chosen the best food. She has chosen to feast on my words, and that will not be taken from her. My friends, it is possible to be stuffed from nibbling at all the portions of our to-do list that we have spoiled our appetite for the main portion. John Piper, in speaking in another context, says this, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is because you have drunk deeply, I'm sorry, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, And there is no room for the great. He says, as it were, if you don't have strong feelings for the the glory of God manifested in your life, it's not because you've drunk deeply or eaten deeply of the glory of God. It's because you've nibbled. You've been eating junk food. You've been trying to satisfy your soul on getting your to-do list done. And you have no room for the great the bread of life. So let me ask you this question, my friends. Today, in your life, how is your appetite for the words of Christ? Is it non-existent? Is it there, maybe like a, a rumbling in your stomach when you haven't eaten food in a while? Or is it, is it flaming hot? How is your appetite for the words of Christ at this moment in your life? Look back over this past week. How has your appetite been for the words of Christ? 
there is one thing necessary. So let's ask this question. Why does Luke record this for us? I mean, he didn't record for us the death of Lazarus at this house. He wants to highlight something else. Remember, Luke is writing to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, that he is not only God's son, but he is God's true ruler of this world. And he thinks Jesus is worth sacrificing everything for. And so Jesus is the one who can satisfy us like nothing else can. And yet we're so tempted to nibble on the things of this world, our to-do list, to, to check off one more thing that Jesus can recede to the background when what Luke wants to convince us of is that he ought to be the very blazing center of our lives. And so the one thing that's necessary is to center your crazy, busy life upon Jesus. That's the best thing you can do today, and that's the best thing you can do tomorrow. This is why he redeemed you, so that your life might be centered upon him. That living under his kind rule, we wouldn't be enslaved to the million things we haven't done. But that we can have a blazing center from which we can actually move out and do those things. So just a couple points of application, my friends, as we, as we consider these words of Jesus. First of all, let's diagnose our crazy, busy lives. Why is it that we are so crazy busy? What is driving us? I mean, we all have responsibilities, right? I mean, we have things that we need to get done, right? But what's driving our crazy, busy hearts so that they often reflect Martha's heart more than Mary's? There's an article in the New York Times a number of years ago by Tim Kreider. It's called The Busy Trap, and this is what he said. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. I remember reading this quote one time. I had to stop and ask myself, why do I take pleasure in letting people know how crazy busy I am? And I think the Lord revealed to me is because I'm trying to impress people with how important I am. I mean, if I was completely bored and had nothing to do, then what does that say about me? I wonder if the reason you can't say no to some things is because what you want most of all is the approval of others. And so you let yourself be enslaved to one more thing on the to-do list. And it keeps you away from what's most important, the one thing Jesus says is necessary. I remember having a conversation with a student here at Texas A&M. He was a leader in our campus ministry at the time, and I had known him well over the years, and we were, we were catching up. Uh, for a little, I hadn't seen him in a little bit um, in terms of, I mean, I saw him every week, but I hadn't had an opportunity to sit down and talk with him and see how things were going. And so I asked him how his his walk with the Lord was going. And he just starts shaking his head. He's like, man, I just, I've got so much stuff going on and I've got this meeting here and I've got this organization I'm a part of and I've got this work here and I've got this project I'm working on and uh, I just, I, I don't have time to sit before the Lord. 
I don't have time to read the scriptures. I don't have time to pray. And I'm sitting here listening to him give me all these excuses <laughs> on why he's neglecting his walk with the Lord. And this is one of those moments where, it doesn't happen to me all the time, but in, in this moment I felt the Lord impress upon me a very direct question which just, it, it took, it was like an arrow going right at his heart. And I said to him, I think it was me, maybe it was the Lord speaking to me, but I said, what is it you find so distasteful about the Lord Jesus? That you've so strategized your life that you avoid spending time with him? And I could tell that that question struck the nerve it needed to hit. I could see him just kind of deflate from that previous position of pride where he was telling me about how busy he was, how important he was, and how he didn't have time to spend with Christ. And he was speechless. And I didn't know what else to say. So I said to him, my friend, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to go and let you just be with the Lord right now. I know some of you are thinking, don't ever have coffee with a pastor. <laughs> He's going to ask me hard questions like that. I don't want to answer. I don't think it happens every once in a while. But, uh, but yeah. Is it possible that we actually don't want fellowship with the Lord? Or we're fine to throw him a bone every once in a while to maybe go to church or you know, give some money to a poor person or something like that. But, but are we attending to the one thing that's necessary? Paul the Apostle write to a group of believers living in the ancient city of Ephesus. And he said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. The reason God sent his son Jesus to teach and to demonstrate what it means to be fully and truly human in relationship with the Father and why Jesus went to the cross to remove every barrier to fellowship and relationship with him was because he wants us to know him better. That's his heart. This is why Jesus wants you to sit at his feet every single day. And so that's the first point of application. Let's diagnose our crazy busy lives and ask the question, what is really driving us? How are we fooling ourselves? What are we trying to prove with our crazy busyness. But here's the second point of application. Let's pull up the weeds in our life. All of our lives is like a garden where things are growing and some things are good and some things are not good. And, and Jesus would teach at times that there are weeds growing in our life. That if we're not careful, can actually choke out the word. There's a time in the Gospel of Mark that's recorded for us in which Jesus was just talking about how our sower went out and sowed seeds, and these seeds were representative of, of the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus. And Jesus said, Other seeds are sown among thorns. They, that is, these thorns growing up, are those who hear the Word, speaking of the Word of Christ, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things Enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. What Jesus is saying here is there's any number of things, and maybe even a million things, that can choke out the word, 
that he wants to plant in our soul, that he wants to nourish us with. And so let me ask you, my friends, are there weeds growing in your life? Are there thorns that are encircling the good stuff that is actually choking out your desire for the word of Christ? There's another occasion in which Jesus told this parable in a slightly different way. He says, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. Here he shifts the metaphor, but just a little bit and says, look, that word is meant to, to, to have a harvest in our life. But there are things that choke out the desire for the word and the word itself. And so the fruit never matures. He even called it the pleasures of life. These are even good things, right? Piper, again, in his book, uh, Hunger for God, put it this way. He said, the pleasures of this life, it's things that can choke out the word, the pleasures of this life, these are not evil in themselves. They're not vices. These are gifts of God. They're your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching, and internet surfing, and shopping, and exercising, and collecting, and talking, and all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. Even the good things of life that is not wrong to do, to give ourselves to, can choke out the one thing necessary. And so, my friends, we asked earlier, how do we find time for what's most important? Our hearts must be inclined to say no to even good things so we can say yes to what is better. In short, we need a merry heart, M-A-R-Y, in a Martha world. So here's the last point of application, my friends. We've sought to, to diagnose our hearts We've, we've encouraged ourselves to pull up the weeds in our lives. But here's the last point. Let's fight for the one thing necessary because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. I know you have a million things you haven't done, and so do I. But there's one thing above all those things that is absolutely necessary. Jesus must be the center of our life. So let's fight for it because he's worth it. C.S. Lewis, once again, is helpful. He once spoke like this. He said, It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. <laughs> I love the way he puts it. Like, as soon as you wake up, your to-do list comes rushing at you. You begin thinking of everything that you need to do and a million things you haven't done. And it comes rushing at you like wild animals. It's they're chasing you down. And he says the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. I think this is good wisdom from C.S. Lewis. Christians will sometimes talk about having a quiet time with the Lord and open the scriptures and read them or to do their devotions. And, and some people, they find it more effective to do that in the evening. And that would, if that's more effective for you, great. But his counsel here is, 
is in the very first thing in the morning when you wake up, push back everything, the to-do list, and center your life on Christ. Seek his voice. Seek his point of view on your day. Let that other, quieter, larger, stronger life of Christ come flowing in. That's the one thing necessary. And so, my friends, what Jesus is asking us to do is not to add one more thing to our to-do list so that we have a million and one things we haven't done. He's actually asking us to, to do less so that we can hear him, so that we can come before him, so that we can have our lives centered on him. Philip Ryken once again said helpful words. Remember what is necessary. Not something we do for Jesus, but something he wants to do for us as we listen to Jesus. Do you see the difference? Jesus is not asking something more from us. He is asking for less so that he can give us more of And so there's the question before us. What do I need less of in my life so that I can have more of Jesus? How do I need to have a merry heart, to have God work in my life, the affections that Mary had in Jesus, or for Jesus, so that I begin to reprioritize my life and and I make sure I tend to the one thing that's necessary each and every day. What do I need less of in my life so that I can have more of Jesus? My friends, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly.